I think your your hunters probably can put two and two together pretty easily. I mean, you know, hunting and food go together hand in hand. I mean, that's, you know, I think if you strip down hunting and fishing by humans and the reason why we have done it in the beginning as well as today and just, you know, continues on is, is so much of the food aspect. Mm -hmm. The North American model, one of the things that kind of irritates me, the way most people kind of talk about it is that they believe it's like something static, like, you know, Moses came down off the mountain with mm -hmm. the, the seven tenets of the North American model and, you know, it should never be changed, but, you know, that's not true. It has to evolve over time. Mm -hmm. And so the model was basically a look backwards at what were the main seven things that helped get us to where we are today in conservation. I think, you know, if, if you're going to the store and buying an animal or, or you know, whatnot, you, you tend to care about it more. I mean, folks are worried about, you know, they want grass-fed beef, they want all these free-range chickens or, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. It's, it's opening the conscious there. And so if they're eating wild game harvested from this state or any other, you know, it makes them go, hey, maybe I should start caring more. Maybe I need to invest more into, you know, the conservation species as well so it, it kind of helps i've watched guys think they could sneak up on santa cranes <laughs> it's usually a funny exercise because it's how close could they actually get before the birds are like no we're done we're out of here so yeah you want to make sure you like really really blind yourself in really good and try to make use of as many natural things that are available tumbleweeds are a great thing I will say the one thing probably with calling to most folks is don't overcall. Essentially, all you're trying to do is just get the attention of the birds, mm -hmm. um, especially if you have decoys out. You know, call a little bit. Once they see the decoys and, you know, they've, they've turned and kind of locked towards you, just shut up. Don't do any more. Let the birds do their things. Hey, guys, I want to start off by thanking you for keeping me on the air since 2004. I'm trying to keep everything fresh and keep bringing you content that is both enjoyable and informational. So if you can help me out by hitting me up on Instagram or Facebook and giving me some suggestions for guests, topics, and questions, I'd really appreciate it. Also, you've heard me say this, but please, 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 please take a few moments to give me a review on iTunes. It's so important to keeping me on the air. So if you want this podcast to stick around, please get on there and drop me a line. Lastly, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Been title sponsor of the show for a long time. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20% on everything they offer. All right, let's get into this next episode. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, we're going to talk to John O'Dell, and uh, we're going to talk about the ribeye in the sky, sandhill cranes. I, uh, I drew a tag this year, first time I ever put in, and uh, so selfishly, I'm using my podcast to uh, learn more about it because I know zero about uh, hunting or finding sandhill cranes so what's going on man how are you good i'm good good why don't you give us the uh thirty thousand foot view of who you are and what you do and then we'll kind of jump into it yeah so um i was uh, uh a wildlife biologist for arizona game and fish for uh 17 years mm -hmm. um a lot in the small game program uh with migratory birds and <laughs> upland and and all that and and uh wildlife specialist before that uh within the game program most of my time was spent in games so about it but uh um 
last year I uh, felt a, a calling uh, of another nature, and so uh, um, I left the department and moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina, for about uh, eight months, and and uh, learned some Spanish. Went to culinary school, and and uh, now I'm back uh, cooking up here at the Grand Canyon at the Altavar Restaurant. So that's a pretty uh, drastic. Uh, turnaround there. <laughs> yeah, a- I, I, you know, I, I think you know, I, I think your your hunters probably you know can put two and two together pretty easily. I mean, you know, hunting and and food go together hand in hand. I mean, that's you know, I think if you strip down hunting and fishing by humans and the reason why we have done it, you know, in the beginning as well as today, and just you know continues on is is so much of the food um, aspect. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. And so, for me, that was just—it was one of the other passions that I always had in my life that I got from my mom was cooking. And and uh, you know, if I was outside, I was hunting and fishing and and trying to bring home whatever I could. And then when I brought it home, I was in the kitchen with my mom and uh, always learning and watching her, you know, transform it into a, a wonderful meal for the family and everything else. And so, I just, you know, I reached a point where it was like I wanted to be a better student of food and and really kind of push myself uh in that direction quite a bit more so well that, i think that's huge that's awesome i mean it's awesome yeah. one to follow your your uh you know your passions and two you know that it's something that really goes hand in hand to what you've been doing i consider myself a uh, an amateur chef i'm always you know yeah. dabbling with recipes and i worked in restaurant kitchens for many many moons so, yeah, I love it. Well, I, I think, and I think, you know, I mean, part of what I brought to the department as well is, is, uh, I wrote a regular column for over a decade, mm-hmm. uh, called fair field and just trying to educate hunters on to how to better prepare, you know, their, their feast from the forest, uh, essentially. And, you know, try to elevate that, that game, because I think one of the things that was greatly lost in this country was, when conservation, you know, began in the early 1900s and they eliminated the sale of, of wild game meats to the markets and all that stuff is the culinary side of wild game just like dropped off the map at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, because the only people who were, you know, getting access to it were the hunters, Uh, you know, and, and most of them weren't culinary professionals or any of that. And so for a long time, it really, I think it languished because prior to, those early 1900s when that happened, game was the highest fare in the United States. I mean, it was served at all the greatest restaurants. I mean, that's why market hunting occurred, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were serving duck and buffalo and, you know, those kind of things. And then, you know, that really left the public eye uh, for a long time. And so, you know, I've had a chance to travel uh, a lot of places around the world. And I think, you know, England always surprises me as how, um, uh, accessible wild game meats are to the general public still. And mm-hmm. so the approval of hunting kind of remains high. And so as you talk about, you know, the, the public's perception of hunting here in America, obviously the, the number one way that, you know, the, the general public who doesn't hunt supports hunting is, you know, because of the fact that we eat it. I mean, that's really their, you know, if you're going to harvest something, it has to be eaten. And so mm-hmm. they, they keep favor that way. And so, um, you know, we, really should, you know, instead of kind of, you know, just muck it up or whatnot and, you know, kind of easy cook it, maybe there's a way to kind of elevate it and bring it back to that status of really high fare, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny, not really funny, but it's, I I can, I can draw very simple parallels to that in my own life. 
growing up, and my mom's a fantastic cook. You know, I'm born of Italian immigrants, so cooking's like in our in our thing here. But when it came to game meat, I never really liked the things my mom made. There was a couple things like rabbit and whatever, which they did very well, and you know, upland birds and whatever, bowling it like deer and like man, it was always just not not enjoyable to me, and it kind of ruined me for a long time until I realized the meals that I can make for it and have the, you know, make out of it with these, you know, elevated recipes and like doing things and more so in the last like five or six years, maybe, maybe it's even longer than that. My, my, uh, my timeline gets skewed very easily, but I think, you know, in the last 10 years, at least I've learned how to really cook game meat and prepare it. And now it's like, you know, I revere it alongside of any any other cuisine that I would eat in the top restaurant anywhere, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, hearing you say that makes makes perfect sense. I, I wish that there was, you know, like like you said, in Argentina, you know, those, you go red stag hunting, they sell that meat to, uh, you know, local restaurants or whatever. I mean, I wish that was still there was a way i'm sure there is a way that you can regulate it and and still be good for everybody and i think it would do a lot for the perception of hunting yeah a lot of people are torn on this issue i mean this has been a subject that's been kind of rattling around within the wildlife you know kind of the wildlife science community um essentially the state agencies and biologists and the feds and all that and it's kind of torn with a lot of people because um you know some folks believe that you know where it is now um it's kind of you know the the idea of the north american model and you know whether it fits in with that and the north american model one of the things that kind of irritates me the way most people kind of talk about it is that they believe it's like something static like you know moses came down off the mountain with Mm -hmm. the, the seven tenets of the north american model and you know it should never be changed but you know that's not true it has to evolve over time and mm-hmm. so the model was basically a look backwards at what were the main seven things that helped get us to where we are today in conservation. And so um, there are clear examples of where, you know, turning um, wild game or, or things into a commercial market um, has been really beneficial. I mean, one of the things was the American alligator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American alligator was completely saved because of the commercialization aspect to where now like i mean american alligators were almost completely wiped out in the south but then when they started to you know turn it into a commercial business mm-hmm. selling the hides selling the meat those kind of things the people in louisiana and, and florida and all that who uh you know basically turned this into a, a living you know you, you watch that old tv show swamp people right um, you know they're very protective of the alligators now so now people aren't you know just willy-nilly you know wiping out these ugly lizards who are, you know, eating yep. dogs or, or coming to bite, you know, like it, it's profitable for them. And so, and it actually helped take the, the American alligator, which is one of the very few, few species that have ever been taken off the endangered species list, you know, and part of that was a commercial aspect to it. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting topic. I mean, I would love to see something like that, you know, be discussed more, um, I think openly and, and all that to, to figure out maybe what, you know, what could be done. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting. I mean, I know they've done these like donation programs where they feed the hungry, yep. um, with, with the game meat, which 
Um, you know, I don't know what kind of meals they're making out of that, but I feel like if that is doable, then something else could be put in place for this to, like, if, you know, like I said, just be highly regulated and not change. You know, I think what people get hung up on is the, you know, the, they think the market hunting, but market hunting back then was, you know, just shoot whatever you can, as many as you can. And if it was like, hey, I only still only get one tag a year, then it shouldn't change the, um, you know, the way we manage, basically. Yeah. yeah. You no, know, it shouldn't affect, it, it only be positive, well, like you were saying, you know, add, add another value to the, to the, uh, to the wildlife itself. Yeah. I mean, and the interesting thing is, is, you know, the moment you pull the trigger and the animal goes down, it goes from, you know, being a, a public resource to a private resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that is yours. And that's where I think the question becomes, you know, it's a private resource at that point. You have personal ownership. Who's to say it couldn't, you know, or a portion of it couldn't be sold, you know, to a, a fine dining restaurant or, or something like that. So, yeah, well, I think that'd be cool. More so for, like you said, just to expose the non-hunting public to stuff they probably wouldn't be exposed to that, 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 you know, table fare, but yeah. Um, and then, you know, it it kind of opens the market. I I have a really good friend of mine, uh, Esther Veerman, who's, she's a, uh, they call her a country cook over in England. And and what that means is she just, you know, she's kind of like a farm cook, but she, she cooks a lot of wild game and all that stuff. And works the shooting shows and stuff and, and helps to educate people on that. You know, if they're going to the store and buying a, a deer loin, you know, what to do with that, or if they're getting, you know, some red grouse or some pheasant. And so it, the channels are, I think, you know, it, there's a lot of channels possible to be able to do those things, you know, to, to help grow that public appreciation as well as support uh, and consumption. Um, and then it gets more people involved too, you know, like I think, you know, if, if you're going to the store and buying, uh, an animal or, or, you know, whatnot, you, you tend to care about it more. I mean, you know, folks are worried about, you know, they want grass fed beef. They want all these, you know, free range chickens or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It's, it's opening the conscious there. And so if they're eating wild game harvested from this state or any other, you know, it makes them go, Hey, maybe I should start caring more. Maybe I need to invest more into, you know, the conservation of species as well. So it, it kind of helps fund that, um, you know, in a, in a, much broader way than just, you know, the hunting, hunting and angling community have been for so long. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah, no, I would, I would be very interested to be part of that. And, um, you know, in the meantime, I know there's things that we're doing in Halfa wildlife. I don't, you and I never spoke about it, but, uh, I'm vice president and of Halfa wildlife. And a lot of what we do is, is reaching the non-hunting public and sharing truths with them. But one of the things that I know we want to start getting into is actually doing like these game dinners and stuff like that and stuff that we've promoted to our member base saying, you know, hey, you harvest something, invite non-hunters to dinner and, you know, share with them what you make from this. And Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I think think one of the... um probably one of the most eye-opening experiences and, and um, 
different groups are definitely paving different ways. But one of the coolest fundraisers uh, every year is the Backcountry Hunters Anglers Field of the Table of Dinner event mm-hmm. that they hold at their rendezvous every year. Just on the on the cost per person, I mean, it's usually I think ninety six people, mm-hmm. roughly thereabouts, about a hundred people. Um, the dinners sell out in like. I don't know, like four minutes a couple oh, wow. years ago. And, you know, it's like $500 a head. And so they raised like $50,000 well, um, in, in a short amount of time. And so the, the window is definitely there. It's all the chef or the chefs who, who are, who are, you know, providing the meals at night, they provide the meat, you know, and so it's a donation based to backcountry owners anglers. So there's no sale, you know, of, of meat products and those kind of things. And, and, uh, it really raises a lot of, uh, money for, you know, great causes. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we thought about doing something similar to that. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that come to fruition for multiple reasons. You know, one, like you said, it's a, a good uh, fundraising uh, event. And, uh, but two, also there to raise that awareness amongst those who, who may not know. Yeah, venison diplomacy. Yep, exactly. Well, um, I guess. Uh, we should probably start jumping into sandhill cranes here. Uh, well, it's a, and it's a it's a nice segue going from meats, you know. Speaking yeah. of meat, <laughs> yeah, exactly right into the ribeye of the sky. I mean, exactly, the, the... exactly. I, you know, I never, I've never tried it. I've never, I've never tasted it. I've always heard that you know sandhill is an excellent table fare. I've heard different things about hunting them, but never really dove down that path. It was always something in the back of my mind saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go do that, especially since I have the opportunity to do it here in Arizona. And uh, this year I was just like, yeah, hell, let's do it. Let's, let's make it happen. So yeah, it's, it's definitely an overlooked opportunity for sure. Um, You know, I think it, it seems, you know, it obviously happens during the time when a lot of their hunts are going on and, and, you know, folks tend to be more um, preoccupied with applying for deer and elk and they're, you know, making sure the points are there and, mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to play the the draw game there and really kind of overlook, you know, the sandhill opportunity because, you know, they don't want something else conflicting or, or whatnot. And so I think, you know, they tend to miss out on it um, quite a bit more. So yeah my dad he's um a photographer and uh he does a lot of wildlife photography mostly wildlife photography and he's gone down and photographed the sandhill crane migration a couple times and uh you know so that kind of sparked my my interest a little bit more too but of course he goes where i don't believe you're allowed to hunt over there but um (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people are actually surprised that when they find out that you can hunt sandhill cranes, um, at least members of the general public, you know, who are bird watchers or mm-hmm. uh, or any of that, um, they're always surprised. And and um, but I, it's it's one of those things where it, they are. It's sandhill cranes are, are an awesome sight to see. You know, overall, they're very prehistoric um, in a way. Uh, I know that they're the the oldest bird in the fossil record that has remained unchanged. Hmm. Um, about a hundred thousand years, um, completely unchanged, you know, following a lot of the same paths that they normally do. And then if you, if you've ever heard their call, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can hear for like (laughs) a mile and a half, two miles away, it is very prehistoric sounding. And, you know, the reason they're, they have this strange voice box and and the way that they trumpet and and all that, that you can hear for a very, very long ways away. And that, that lends itself to that, that prehistoric aspect of them. So, and they're very large, you know, as far as a bird goes, I mean, some of the graders stand up over four feet tall 
six foot wingspans. That's, um, that's you know, crazy. Really, really big bird. Yeah. Yeah. My first uh, interaction with them was in actually in Florida and I didn't even know that they were there, but, and I don't know if they're the exact same subspecies or whatever, the ones that we have here, but in my head, first time I saw them was like, this is a dinosaur bird. And it sounded like a, like a velociraptor or something, right? Like, you know, and I was like, well, not that I would know what a velociraptor sounds like or what, what anybody would know what it sounds like. But yeah, in my head, that's, that's what I equated it to. Um, yeah. And they're, they're exactly the same species. Um, it can be a little confusing for most folks because of like how they're managed. The ones in Florida don't even migrate anymore. No. Um, you know, they hang out year round and, and some of those Eastern ones. And so, you know, if you were, if you were trying to divide it up, essentially there's, there's two types, you know, there's a, uh, the lesser and the greater. Um, so you have a really large bird or really uh, like a smaller stature bird and lessers are about three feet tall, maybe about a five foot wingspan. They're, they probably on average weigh about mm, seven pounds or so mm -hmm. where you can get up into, uh, the graders, you know, weighing, Geez, uh, upwards of 20 pounds. Okay. Um, if you start right there, there's lessers and graders. And then um, there's kind of this new discovery um, that for a long time we were calling Canada's. We thought they were a, a hybrid um, between a, a lesser and a greater because you can, when we're taking biological measurements of them and stuff, like you measure the, the tarsus bone, the leg bone, and then you measure the wing cord and you measure the, uh, the bill from the, the nostril out to the tip and, you know, all this kind of information. And so graders and lessers are very much distinct in terms of, um, their, their measurements. measurements, essentially you can, yeah, you can space them out, but then there was these birds that started showing up in the middle and it wasn't super long ago when I first started seeing them in Arizona, probably, Oh, it was probably late 2000s, I think, when we started seeing them a little bit. And they're very big birds. They're kind of leaning towards the greater side, but there was always some measurement on them that was off. You know, like they had a shorter tarsus than they were supposed to, or their bill just wasn't quite at the greater length. But they overall, they were still like really big, heavy birds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they, they started showing up more and more and we were like oh these just must be hybrids between a greater and a lesser and as far as the latest science i know they're saying that that wasn't the case um that they're actually just some variety essentially the flyways have done a tremendous job of managing sandhill cranes and sandhill crane hunting as well as you know kind of the, the habitats that you're starting to see them in and and so these these lessers and graders are broken up into different like management populations is kind of what you call them. So there's a, there's a Pacific coast population. There's a central Valley population. There's a Rocky mountain population. There's the mid continent population. There's the, the Mississippi population. And then there's like that Atlantic Florida population as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's been tremendous to see. I think it's one of the crowning achievements of waterfowl management um, across the country to see where the population used to be 20, 25 years ago to where it is today, where, you know, I mean, the mid continent is, geez, it's pushing about a million birds now where it really was down, like, you know, to just maybe a hundred, 200,000, hmm. um, at one point. And then the Rocky mountain population was, was very, very low. It was just into the, you know, just a few thousands and now it's, you know, well over 20,000. So, nice. um, you see I like really these kind of growths and have that including with it being a very long lived bird. I mean, some of them live, you know, 20, 30 years. Oh, wow. Um, and then, you know, they, they they only 
have usually one colt. Um, it's not like they have a whole clutch of eggs. You know, they invest a lot into one offspring. And so to have hunting as a part of a, a, a slow growing population like that is really cool to see. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. From what I, what I, they understand, they, they lay about two eggs, right? Yeah, one to two. Most of the time, it's usually one um, on average, uh, one colt that they'll raise up and stuff like that. So that's cool. Well, I guess let's let's talk a little bit about behavior. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and then we'll kind of go into how to find them and where to look and all that stuff. Well, as far as behavior, I mean, um, you know, they at least, you know, for, for folks in Arizona, I mean, these things really have benefited a lot, even throughout the whole country, but really from farming, that's been one of the major things that you see with these birds. They, they love cleaning up, you know, the old grain, particularly corn. That's usually one of their favorites, but they're an omnivorous bird. I've seen them eat corn, uh, spiders, rodents, snails, uh, (laughs) you know, you name it just kind of depends on what it is. So, you know, a lot of the times, uh, folks are usually having to try and, and get permission on private lands because, you know, like I said, they're, they're mostly hanging out on farm fields to eat. And then they usually have a roost site um, that they go to every day. Usually has water, um, not all the time, but, but generally there's, there's water involved, be that a river, be it a, like here in Arizona, we have the, the Wilcox Ply area and then the, the whitewater draw um, wildlife area where there's water and, and, you know, they, <clears throat> they stand out in it overnight and kind of huddle up at night and then in the morning you know it's everybody's getting up and squawking and that's usually when like you'll hear the most noise if you're ever close to a roost site to hear them taking off and stuff they're constantly squawking and squalling at each other and trying to get everybody moving and flying out to the fields to to go feed so so um, are they typically leaving during or like right at sunup or yeah a little bit before right at sunup it depends on the day you know or how cold it is or or things like that whatever kind of drives them off sometimes you know coyotes are patrolling the outside and you know that agitates them a little bit so they might take off a little earlier or whatnot but and they'll fly for you know tens tens of miles um sometimes over 100 miles in a day um mm-hmm. you know um going to wherever food is from wherever the roost site is so um and we, i've seen some birds you know uh like small family groups three or four maybe up to six um that you know will even roost on like a, a stock tank or a cattle pond um overnight sometimes um if they're not settled in a place yet so gotcha and uh going back to roost was that you know, again, typically like what, half an hour or so before sundown or. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> you know, right around sundown or, or, uh, you know, you'll, you'll start seeing them lift off and head out and just after the sun kind of goes down. So, you know, there's still a little bit of light in the sky, but they're heading back home and, you know, they fly out in the morning. Sometimes they fly back to the roost midday and then they'll go back out to afternoon to kind of feed before they come back. Sometimes they stay out all day. One of the things that they, one of their behaviors that you generally see, particularly in Arizona, is is right after that morning feed. Sometimes they'll just get up in the air and they'll just circle like a tornado straight up in the sky and catch thermals. Mm. They're just loafing around, flying. You know, no particular agenda at that point. Um, you know, they've all got food in their bellies, and <laughs> so I don't know if they're just trying to burn calories or or what they're doing, but. Uh, they love, you know, just riding thermals in the air and, and doing big circles. Sometimes they'll literally just, if they can find a, a safe, comfortable field, they'll just lay down there and stay there, you know, throughout most of the day. Gotcha. Yeah. So when we were talking about the graders and lessers, uh, mm-hmm. what, what do we typically see here in Arizona? 
Eastern Arizona and, and Western New Mexico are unique in the fact that the, as we were talking about the different populations, mm-hmm. the mid-continent population and the Rocky Mountain population cross over uh, across the border of our two states. Okay. And so it's it's really kind of a unique area. And so we have um, lessers as well as graders, obviously more lessers based on just solid numbers mm-hmm. um, than graders. But um, yeah, they all kind of hang together. But you know, one of the things that, that I had noticed in particular is with the graders, a lot of times the graders will still hang out in like their family groups. Like I said, kind of small numbers, anywhere from two to six. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's usually the, the adults and, and the most recent cult um, hanging with them. And, you know, they, they tend to stay on their own, but sometimes they'll get mixed in with big flocks of lessers. The lessers are always just huge flocks of birds, mostly because there's just so dang many of them. Um, and so any of the very, very large V's you'll see, but, and, and it's really a, because they're so big in general, um, a lot of times it's hard to like really spot. You got to really look at each bird. And I tend to look at like neck length when they're flying to see if like, Oh, that's a big one. Or, you know, that's not, um, you know, uh, as they're, they're flying around, but yeah, they'll get mixed up together and, and hang out. A lot of times they're always going to the same fields because they know where food is or, mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. But some of the, some of the greater groups will go off on their own. I think a little bit smarter, maybe, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, especially after hunting starts. So, uh, the graders are a little more wary and like, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's do that. But it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, sometimes you want the greater groups coming because there's, they're, first of all, they're really big birds. And so you can kind of maximize your meat harvest and all that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it tends to be, they're a little more wary. And so if you get them coming in, um, that's really kind of a good sign. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're a little harder to get where the lessers, the double-edged sword with that is that there's so many of them, you have so many more eyes that, you know, you can screw up, um, <laughs> a whole lot more easy right. uh, with them because there are so many more eyes on looking at the ground before they land. So. Gotcha. So do you, is there a preference to which better table fare one or the other or? No, they're, they're pretty much identical. Um, I, I like shooting the, obviously the graders or the Canada's just because, you know, the, the meat yield is more, um, right. <laughs> anytime I can, you know, get the most amount of meat, it's, it's, it's a good time, but I've enjoyed some of those years, um, hunting them where, uh, I, I call it the hat trick where you shoot a lesser, a greater and a Canada. Oh yeah. Um, That'd be cool. you know, if you can, if you can pull that off in, in one hunt, cause you're, you know, you're only allowed to, to take the three birds. Right. Um, that's always fun. Uh, another goal is, you know, to try and shoot three graders cause that's, that's a pretty difficult short in and of itself too. So, um, most folks find usually, um, with crane hunting, you know, it can be very difficult. They, they really want, I think hunters want to bag out, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, shooting one bird, let alone three is, is kind of a difficult task. So if you get one, like, uh, man, that's a win, you know, um, in my book, like, you know, it takes usually a lot of time and experience to, to really, you know, drive because the hunts are, the hunts here are only three days too, you know, yes. so you have a, kind of a limited window. You got to, you know, really kind of focus and, and dial in what's, what's going on, um, you know, to, to be able to harvest birds. And so, you know, if, even if you just get one, cause this, the other challenge that you're going to have is shooting them, you know, yep. because nothing in the world can train you for shooting these birds. 
uh, there's there's not a you know clay target course or anything that that you know could could get you ready for um hunting those birds so mm-hmm. uh you you learn pretty quick about lead time and and all those things because you'll be like man how did i miss like here's this big bird and it's deceptive because um as big as they are it's kind of like watching those really giant military aircraft <laughs> that take off and you're like how is that thing even flying it's just moving really really slow but it's actually moving in a pretty good clip and so sometimes uh Samuel cranes you know when they're moving they're moving about as fast as a dove is oh wow okay and so it's just deceptive because they're so big it looks like they're slower than they are yeah that and makes... then you're also judging distance too because it's hard to tell how far away from you they are mm-hmm. and so that helps you know adjust your kind of your lead time on trying to shoot the birds down so gotcha See, in my head, originally, I wanted to do this with a bow, but every, yeah, everybody, that's a, that's I've talked a big to, challenge. everybody I've talked to said, take the shotgun, but yeah, I don't know. I might still do that. And it all depends. If um, you can get them landed out in front of you, that's a definite possibility. Um, yeah. you know, as far as trying to shoot one flying in the air, I wouldn't even no. begin to touch that with a bow. Yeah. I'm fairly good at shooting flying in the air, but you know, what am I dealing with here? 20, 30 yards max. Like, I don't know if I can. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if we can, if we can make that happen. Let's talk about hunting tactics a little bit, you know, walk me through a, a day of, of John going sandhill crane hunting. What a, what a year, what's well, your approach? Usually the day before the hunt starts, I need to watch the morning flight you know, follow the birds around and, and see which fields they're landing on and what, and what's in those fields that they're landing on. Um, you know, I may not know right away, but I know, okay, they landed in this field. Yeah. It looks like they wanted to go this way. Here's where they were coming from all that. And so, uh, usually after that, when the birds vacate, cause I don't want to push them out of that field later that day, you know, if I can't identify what that's, what's in that field, I'll go out there, I'll look, you know, try to walk right where those birds were landing and see what they were kind of digging around in. Because mm. you'll you'll see them land in cornfields, and that's a pretty obvious one, you know. They're out there looking for corn. But, you know, if they land in an alfalfa field, people are always like, oh, are they eating alfalfa? It's like, no, not really. They're probably eating the spiders or something else that's in the alfalfa. Mm. Or if it's a, you know, plowed over field, all right, let's go out and see what's in this, you know. Because um, farmers are growing strange stuff sometimes, you know. It could be some wheat or leftover some silage on the ground so um yeah i really um you know i just want to see where the birds are coming from what to expect what time um and there's no guarantee the birds are going to land in that same field again the next day but it's a pretty good indicator that you know they want to be in that area so then the next kind of phase is is where like where do i want to set up because these birds can see better i mean they have like hawk like vision you know they have like binoculars and so you know the goal for me is to find the best place to build a blind in and i want to be completely camouflaged um from all sides sometimes even definitely not a spot stock type hunt no no i've watched guys think they could sneak up on santa cranes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's usually a funny exercise because it's how close could they actually get before the birds are like, no, we're done. We're out of here. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, you want to make sure you like really, really blind yourself in really good and try to make use of as many natural things that are available. Tumbleweeds are a great thing. You know, we go out and collect a bunch. And so, and we're usually doing that like just after dark, after the birds have already left for the day mm-hmm. and try to set up, um, you know, and using natural things like trees or, or, uh, fence lines or things like that, where it's like, you know, 
kind of normal for them to see what they're seeing. Um, you know, you don't want to, to change the landscape that much. Um, mm-hmm. um, I have done some pretty outlandish stuff where I've, you know, just like there was no, there was nothing close to where these birds wanted to be in this field. And so I built like a tumbleweed coffin for myself out mm-hmm. in the field. Um, gotcha. and to just kind of, just kind of hit it. And I was, I was pretty successful at it surprisingly. Um, but you know, I just needed to be covered on all sides and, and all that. So, yeah. So that night blind gets built and then it's, you know, get ready for the next day. Um, a lot of times, you know, I, I, I found out pretty, there was no like real guide for me when I first started hunting sandhill cranes. And so the first kind of few years I was hunting, I was, I was past shooting. And so I would put myself, um, where I thought the birds like were flying over and give me the best chance to hopefully get a shot at one as it was going over. And so I was okay with it. Um, the first few years, I mean, I would, you know, I'd luck out and I'd get one or, you know, some back in those days, the bag limit was two. And so I remember it took about three or four years till I actually got a bag limit of two birds. And then the, the bag limit got increased to three, but then, you know, I started getting in more into decoys. Mm-hmm. Um, you find that, you know, decoys are, are a real game changer and they can be really expensive. You know, I always tell people, you know, if you're going to get into sand crane hunting, you're, you're kind of in it for life. Um, and so, because the, the, the sound of those birds will just haunt you, you know, forever. And it becomes such a really, I mean, it it gets, gets you as excited as like turkey hunters or deer hunters or elk hunters, the guys who are just devoted to this thing. Santa Cranon is the same way. And so I always tell people, you know, don't, don't cheap out when it comes to decoys, you know, kind of get the best stuff you can. It's going to, you know, it's last you for years, you know, and, and take care of those things. But yeah, decoys as well as calls, um, the calling game really changed things a lot too. Um, there's a lot better calls than when I first started crane hunting and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of them out there, but some of the early calls, it's like, uh, it, it was like a detuned goose call. Okay. Um, and it was made by a guy who'd never heard of Sandy Crane before in, in person. He only heard him on like recordings. Okay. And so, <laughs> But uh, I will say the one thing probably with um, with calling to most folks is don't uh, overcall. Essentially, all you're trying to do is just get the attention of the birds, mm-hmm. um, especially if you have decoys out. You know, call a little bit. Once they see the decoys and, you know, they've, they've turned and kind of locked towards you, just shut up. You know, don't do any more. Let the birds do their thing. So, right. um, you know, they're, they're pretty suspicious a lot of times. And so, you know, they might take a few, I've had birds, you know, take a few circles around my decoys and then just decide, no, this wasn't it and took off. Mm. Um, you know, and so it's always a judgment call on whether or not, you know, do you want to shoot them flying? Do you want to get them landed and then shoot them? Cause that makes it a whole lot easier getting a bird that's kind of cupped up and parachuting in they're slowed down a whole lot and it's a little easier just to like point directly at them and shoot them so sure but uh how many yeah i mean i've used as few like i said the the thing of it is is with uh graders you can use fewer decoys okay because they're smaller Mm -hmm. in number and then with lessers you need like a lot of more decoys to really attract their attention so that's really kind of the the balance of the two give me a number on both of them uh, with graders, I mean, I, I've run anything from, you know, two to 12. Okay. You know, just trying to keep the, the group small. Um, with my buddies now, like we have, um, I think as a, as a whole, you know, 
probably close to over 60. Um, when it all, when it's all said and done, you know, we can have a flock of up to 60 out in front of us. Um, and that's worked out well. Those and we use a mix of full bodies as well as, um, silhouettes. Okay. I was going to say if you were using silhouettes or not, because I, those full body ones, they're like a hundred bucks a piece, aren't they? Yeah. Um, the three kind of main names in the full body market are, uh, deception decoys, um, S and K out of Canada. And then, uh, Don Mintz from Oregon, his, uh, his hand carved fully flock decoys are probably the most expensive, Okay, but, uh, I think they're final, also like final approach makes them too. No. Uh, oh, I didn't know Final Approach had released some now. Okay. Yeah. Um, Those are the ones that I Chinese saw ones. Yeah, there's some cheap Chinese ones. Um, I think uh, Flambeau had made a, a great blue heron confidence decoy. Yes. Um, and then they basically just took that and like painted it to look like a crane. Um, uh, I've actually seen guys. <laughs> I had this group of hunters one here. It was pretty funny. They bought um, pink flamingos off Amazon. <laughs> Um, and actually repainted them <laughs> to look like sand hills. The problem was, is these pink flamingos were like, you know, they were like maybe like the two foot size yep. ones. They weren't like, you know, the, the full Monty ones. And I, they ended up shooting a few birds, at least the ones that were coming by to look. So, you know, it, it I think it helped, um, to say the least, but yeah. Yeah. I was just, I just jumped online to see. So deception has. The Western Series Sandhill Crane Decoy six pack, four hundred eighty bucks. Yeah, that Western Series is the lessers. Yep. Okay. And then uh, they have their greater packs and stuff like that. The lessers, I I, I have both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, the Westerns are nice because they're smaller, and so you can pack more at one time. Right. Um, okay. The, yeah, I the, see the graders. It's a three pack. Yeah, the graders come in the three packs and stuff, and and usually I have like these real jumbo goose bags that I I put on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's just hard to haul around so. yeah geez this is gonna this is gonna be a lot bigger undertaking than a, more of an undertaking than i uh anticipated <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well like i said if it, once you get into it it's like you're just kind of in it for life right and so you're just kind of like all right you know um yeah i have a, a a whole rack of my my duck room at home is just devoted to the sandhill crane decoys so yeah yeah I've, i i used to duck hunt quite a bit and um since i've been married i haven't really done much because you know i gotta kind of like choose my battles or i only get so many get out of jail free cards per year you know right and i'd rather no, it's a it's, go chase an it's elk a grind go chase an elk than uh go shoot ducks but yeah those are the choices people make and i tell you what i would always like sandhill crane became my favorite and and so that was like the primary for the year yeah nothing interfered with that three days yeah that's uh yeah the one good thing i mean the one good things and bad things about it is that it's a really short season but i just i i want to obviously i want to have success i want to do it and then at the same time i'm like I don't know if I should make the investment or not. I was looking for, actually, to be honest with you, before I, I came across you, I was looking for a an outfitter. I was like, you know yeah. what? I'm just going to pay a guide because I, I want to be successful. I don't know what I'm doing. Be a good thing for me to shorten the learning curve if it's something I want to get into. And uh, everybody that I spoke to was like, "Oh no, you, you got that unit? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I can't take you." I'm like, 
crap. Yeah, most of the <laughs> most of the guides and outfitters are all focused on um, the the multi unit area. Yeah, and so and, and it's understandable. I mean, there's there's far more birds, far more tags, um, that kind of stuff, and it's it's a little more confined there in the in the twenty eight hunt, but yeah, yeah, but we'll give it a go. We'll see what happens. I got a buddy of mine that um, he's got some access already on private land and he has some decoys i'm trying to see if he's available but who knows and now i just found out nothing just found out i just noticed that i i have a deer hunter on the fourth <laughs> or no on the on the fifth on the fifth and my hunt for the um crane starts on the third so at best, I'm going to get two days, uh, two days, two cracks at them, you know? Um, so, yeah. And so you have the December 3rd, 4th and 5th. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know which days are better than others, but, <laughs> uh, or if there is anything of, of that sort, there's seemed like there was quite a few options in in the regs, like as, as yep. far as days are concerned. So there's, there's quite a few hunts now. Yeah. Yeah. The, the multi-unit starts very early. And so, uh, the 28 is kind of offset by about a week, mm -hmm. um, to, to help the farmers out a little bit more with some of the conflict issues they've been having. So do they do a lot of damage to, uh, yeah, they, they most certainly can. Um, cranes boy on a, on a freshly planted field or something like that, boy, they'll tear up the ground. Um, digging seeds out <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah they they do they do work over some fields pretty good but um yeah there's a 28 hunts a little bit later um off in the season and, and things like that so and, and i think that's good because usually um more birds keep coming mm -hmm. um you know as the hunt goes on so it's not like you know on the very first hunt you have the maximum amount of birds um you know there's still usually some still migrating through down the um through new mexico and into arizona so yeah it's like what it, I, um november 25th and the last day of the that hunt is december 17th so yeah mm -hmm. okay yeah it's pretty pretty good i guess three day incre increments each one right yep three days with a day off in between and then of course you have the the archery hunt kind of start off and then the kids hunt at the end so oh yeah and you realize there was an archery only hunt but that's yeah, okay, and that's only in the multi-unit though, not in twenty. Yeah, and there's a good break usually before the the kids' hunt starts, so um, that at least gives the birds a chance to like kind of settle back down again. Nice. So basically, I mean, you kind of went through what what you do, and you said they have really good eyesight. So there is really no, even if you're an exceptional stalker, not that I am, but um, so there is really no like jump shooting them or. Horse no, in. no. I mean, if, if you, if, if you could find maybe the most ideal situation, it's a possibility, like, you know, there'd probably have to be like an irrigation ditch or something mm -hmm. that you could stay below the line of sight to get all the way close to them to, to get them. But yeah, they're, they're super, they're super wary. They have great eyesight. You know, they see in color. That's why I say, you know, make sure, you know, your blind is, is up to snuff and all that just to cover you. One of the biggest things that I think hunters really screw up on particularly you know like all of a sudden you've got birds locked up out in the distance you know coming straight at you 
um, coming to decoys or something, um, is, is movement. Mm. You know, as soon as someone calls out birds, just stop. Right. You want, you want to stop all your movement because you, you don't want to like lift up and shoot to the very last moment. Gotcha. Cause they'll, they'll, they'll spot any little bit of movement. Ten four. Uh, we touched briefly. We mentioned anyway, uh, calls. What, uh, what are your goal to go to calls? Um, the only one that I had seen was the Haydell's. Yeah. Haydell's crane compensator zero seven. That one actually sounds like a lesser. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's usually, I carry a variety of them usually in my, in my bag, mostly because if someone else is calling with me and all that, you know, you can kind of like, like I said, for the most part, you're just trying to get their attention. And so, um, a lot of times juvenile graders as well as lessers are really high pitched. Okay. Um, and that's what that Haydell's call kind of sounds like. Deception actually made a call for a while. There was a company, the, the guy who runs Deception, um, his name's Garrett. Um, he was uh, like, he's been involved in making calls and all that down in Louisiana, kind of in the breadbasket of duck call making and stuff for a long time. And he opened a company originally called Vendetta and started making a, a Santa Crane call for a short limited while and then um brought it up under the deception name when when they opened that up um and so they have one um there's a couple of calls um there's actually a a call maker in new mexico um and i wish i could remember his name but um he makes a, a wooden and acrylic call and it's a little high pitched too um it doesn't have that deep guttural greater sound that's one of the things you'll notice when you're out there listening to the birds the graders have this like really just deeper more well-rounded sound Mm. um when it comes out instead of being that higher pitched um and they have so many different communications when they talk to each other sometimes they actually even sound like geese um if they're down in a field and and squawking it'll sound like geese for a second but then you know um the rolling trumpet is usually like the kind of the main call that you get on there but um yeah i've got a few of them there's a there's a few makers out there but they're they're kind of higher end expensive i mean you know you're talking into the one two hundred dollars um for a call on it but uh, yeah i saw that i just yeah, looked I up you... that deception one it was 150 bucks yeah mm-hmm. yeah and yeah and i saw that there's there an adjustable two... call there's one that's an adjustable call and i wish i could remember the name of that that maker but um i have that one as well and there's some that were like a company would show up and they made calls for like two years and then they just vanished um like they i can't yeah or, i can say i can't manage it and that's got a really high um you know it's not like uh, a high percentage of hunters are actually hunting sand hill crane no i mean it certainly is growing more popular and as more and more states um add on the season i mean it's really more spreading eastward tennessee and kentucky i think are some of the more recent states that just got sandhill crane hunting in the last five ten years mm-hmm. that makes um, sense as it kind of opens up really texas and oklahoma um kansas have been kind of a breadbasket hunt um uh, arizona's been hunting arizona was the first state in the pacific flyway to start hunting back in 1981 okay um that was our very first season and so um we've been kind of a stalwart in that um as it it spread through the flyway a little bit more so idaho and uh, utah um, have open seasons and colorado probably will never hunt them and then uh probably neither will california or nebraska they just don't have enough of them or 
Okay. No, so Nebraska, Nebraska, the Sandhills are obviously named after the Sandhills of right. Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, and so they're they're kind of seen as a big thing. And then for 17 days after the migration, you know, when they're trying to migrate back north, they all stop on the Platte River in the Sandhills. That's where you see the big migration photos from. Okay. And so I think you know Nevada's taking a pretty big stand as far as like, yeah, we're just never going to hunt them. And so Colorado's the same way. They feel like, you know. Uh, it would just be more trouble than it's worth um, with the general public opening a season. Um, Seriously. At this point, Seriously. As far as the blowback they would get. So, yeah. Colorado's it's kind quite of, the, they're, they're quite the uh, anti-hunting state here coming. Yeah. It was kind of like when uh, Nevada um, and Utah went after uh, swan hunting, mm-hmm. the, t- the tundra swan hunting. That was, those were pretty controversial times when they you know were starting those hunts and all that stuff and and now it's very successful i mean swan hunt you know the swan population has doubled in the past 20 years you know they've done very very well managing it over the years so and and growing the amount of uh tags that hunters are allowed to get so yeah that's pretty cool so before i let you go is there any you know specific uh trick or tactic that you want to share suggest to those that might be listening um you know just you, you got to be there all day i think that's the big thing you know some guys kind of like oh it's lunchtime and you know we haven't seen the birds flying for a couple hours and you know they're kind of like oh we should just you know kind of give up but you know like you, you got to be out there the whole day um because you never know when things happen i i can honestly tell you i've had more cranes fly in silent you know just one or two birds just they they will come in silently especially if you have decoys you know and just like literally won't make a sound and just land right down in the decoys and you're like going oh my gosh like <laughs> i wasn't paying attention i was you know i'm chewing on some chips soy cookies or something and right all of a sudden you look up and it's like hey wait a minute that decoy's head moved like, yep. <laughs> like what just happened why well i wasn't paying attention but yeah just you know if you put in the work mm-hmm. um you know and and just trust the process put in the work watch the birds and you know stay from dawn to dusk at some point you're going to make it happen you know and don't get discouraged sometimes you you are in the best situation mm-hmm. and the first two days it may not happen if things may not come together but on that third day man just you know boom you know all of a sudden you're just flooded with them so gotcha um that's really the big thing you know it's it, it much like anything else you know if you've got a prime elk tag and a prime unit, you know, you, you make sure to give it the time that it's due and, and, you know, wait to the very bitter end, you know, yep. um, sometimes you just got to trust the process, even if you get discouraged about it. Cause it's like, okay, well, you know, we're seeing the birds and if you need to make a, um, you know, a change, you know, go ahead and do it. If you, if you need to move to a different field, if you see them, you know, going somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, make the best choice available and, and make it happen. I mean, you know, I wouldn't chase them all the time, but you know, certainly if you think, man, I'm in just a, a bad situation or, you know, bad spot or whatever's happening, it's like, okay, the birds are wanting to go to that field. That's, that's the one we're going to have to make the play on. So. Gotcha. Actually, I, I, I thought it before I let you go, I got a few more questions about, cause I, I don't know why I didn't ask these before decoys is there any rhyme or reason to how you set them up and are you like setting them up to a certain wind or uh it's not like a it's not like duck hunting like where you're setting up a a sea hook or you're trying to you know um you're trying to develop the x it's kind of a little bit more like goose hunting Mm -hmm. i try to get the birds you know out and away from me 
maybe, you know, 20, 30 yards. I tend to put them more like, you know, as you, if you drive by and you watch the birds, you'll see that there will be like, you know, a group of two or three who like just landed in the field away from the, like a, a bigger group, mm-hmm. you know? And so it'll be like, okay, I need a group of two or three here. I need a group of two or three here. Sometimes I make it look like they're walking and feeding. Cause you have some head up, some resting, some on alert. Definitely. I don't want any of the alert decoys like facing the blind. Okay. You know, <laughs> so, some that people make sense. that mistake where they face them all like, you know, look in the same direction. Like, no, kind of have them looking all around, but don't have them looking at the blind where you're at. Just any of the, the natural kind of stuff, you know, um, make a dead space. You know, I try to like, if I can, I like to keep the middle clear of decoys, you know, maybe have like some of the, you know, maybe I do heavy one side and then light. It depends on like, if you're just a single shooter, you know, you know what your strong side is. If you're you know left-handed shooter, your right-handed side is the strong side. If you're a right-handed shooter, your left hand's the strong side. And so, you know, that's where I want to try and get them to go. So I'll go heavy on the strong side. Okay. Um, with decoys, like if you had 12, I'd put eight and four. Okay. What, you know, what, uh, what kind of shells are you using? Like what's your, so this is, this is probably one of the best questions. Um, because sandhill cranes do not fall underneath the non-toxic shot rule um, okay. because they're a webless species. I always shoot steel because snow geese love to hang out with sandhill cranes Got it. and I'm a sucker for a snow goose. <laughs> so, um, I never want to be without, but that said it never, like it only happened. Like, I think I've had the opportunity to shoot snow geese like twice in, 17 years okay um so it's not not like it's a common occurrence but i know they're out there and so uh a buddy of mine actually uses like he crushes birds he shoots a beretta um 12 gauge Mm -hmm. i think uh an a350 or something like that but he uses the the fiocchi golden pheasant loads oh um in a size four um now i would say if you're shooting steel i really go high in terms of like, if I can get like BBs, mm-hmm. uh, triple Bs, um, I'll shoot those um, just because I want that smackdown power. You know, for for Tano cranes, obviously, you know, a hit, a good hit is a good hit. Doesn't matter where it is, okay. but really, what you want to try and do is hit them in the head like you were a turkey, um, so you don't like you know really tear up a lot of the meat. But if you can't get their head, mm-hmm. um, I will say if you can break a wing with a pellet. Um, that's really like a big thing. You know, you just want to bring these big things down. They're, they're pretty hosed if they have a broken, you know, if if they break a bone in their wings, like they're, they're hosed, they're down. Um, and so, um, but yeah, so my buddy uses golden Fiocchi's. Um, I know some guys use, you know, heavy shot, especially like, you know, if, if you don't have a close shot, I know one guy uses the dead coyote loads, you know, and I mean, he, he has like a full choke and he, <laughs> he's, yeah. he has them landing like way out there and he shoots them in the head, um, after they land. Well, but, I was kind of thinking um, about using my Turkey setup. Um, I shoot, yeah, I shoot TSS. Yeah. I, I don't like full choke that much for those birds. I, I'd prefer more like a modified okay, or even an improved because you really, you don't want to take super wild shots or, you know, really long distance shots on them. Okay. You know, you want to make sure your, your, your pellet pattern is very tight. Um, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can highly recommend those golden Fiocchi's on, on 12 gauge. They, he, he's crushed birds so many times that I was just like, I was shocked, um, at how good it was. And I know sportsman's warehouse carries that right now. So, 
Um, I think he's killed like, I think he's killed like four or five limits with one box and he still has a couple shells left. Um, he's he's using this year. It's just like one shot and done, you know, that's great. That's what Um, you want. That's what you strive for. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would say definitely if you're going to go the lead route, you know, I think you want to be, you know, that higher caliber range, um, fours, you know, fours are good. Um, but uh, uh something with you know some high velocity to it so ten four. all right cool well now that i'm a sand hill crane expert um yeah i don't know i'm still i'll give you the secret i'll give you the secret <laughs> trick as well for cooking okay good so with the breast meat uh-huh just take the breasts off they're just like any other bird they have the breast and then the tenders underneath you don't want to cook the breast. You just cook it like your best steak. Okay. Right? No more than, you know, you just cook a medium, medium rare. They're, they're great, you know, seasoned. Like you don't have to do much to them. That's the one thing that's weird about sound cranes. The reason why they're called ribeye of the sky is how beefy they taste. Okay. Um, it's more of a red meat bird, mm-hmm. but it's not going to taste like duck or goose or anything you've ever had before. It's one of the strangest things. They literally do taste like beef. Then take your thigh meats mm-hmm. um, off. Those are great. Um, you can use them in, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, cube them up, throw them in, you know, stews or, you know, slice them thin for stir fries, whatever. And then the, uh, the drumsticks are something most people kind of overlook. They have really those really hard tendons like every other bird. And so I take the drumsticks off and then I just, you know, crock pot them. Okay make like a green chili or whatever, pull all that meat out for shredded, um, using tacos, using burritos, whatever you need. Um, they have a really big heart. Their gizzard's pretty incredible. The liver as well. If you use a lot of that, um, there's just a ton on those birds you can use. Awesome. And you don't have to worry about the skin. It's, it's like absolutely miserable to pluck those things. Oh, okay. And the skin's really thick and tough. So, so you just, skin it but peel it off yeah we usually yeah. just skin it and, and pull meat so got it good awesome man i appreciate all the insight and uh hopefully uh those going to sand hill crane hunt will uh will pull something out of this and i'm sure i didn't ask all the right questions on this one but <laughs> um i'm i'm not much of a uh, waterfowler or uh really anything on turkey i kind of been dabbling in for the last few years but um right yeah well cool man i appreciate you well thanks for having me hey guys thanks for checking out the show really appreciate you keep those reviews and those comments coming helps us keep this free do me a favor go check out phoenix shooting bags use promo code john stallone to save 20 percent, all one word and check out how for wildlife thank you very much and we'll catch you on the next show